Welcome to Mind Tricks Radio, where we'll explore contemporary topics in psychology through interviewing creative and innovative thinkers in the field. I'm your host, Dr. Aaron Kaplan. Thanks for tuning in. We're here today with Dr. Hal Shorey, a psychologist who specializes in helping people harness their personalities, maximize their personal and professional relationships, and get the best possible life outcomes. He is an associate professor in the Institute for Graduate Clinical Psychology at Widener University outside of Philadelphia. He's published widely in scientific journals on applying personality theory to dealing with relationships, work, change, and adversity. He has a widely read blog on psychology today called The Freedom to Change. Hal, welcome to the show. Oh, thanks. Glad to be here. I'm really excited to talk with you. This topic of attachment styles and personality development is always an interesting one. We've done a couple of shows that have touched upon this theme in the past, and people are always really interested in it. So I'm psyched to talk about this again with you. Yeah, I'm very excited too. It's really a river that's run through everything that I've done. Yeah, let's start by talking a little bit about you as a person and your personal background, how you got into the field, and how you became interested in this particular subject of attachment. Yeah, great. And it does all tie together. So just like many people who are listening to this, I had a colorful childhood, parents divorced at an early age. I was taken to live in several different countries uh, with step-parents. Came back to the United States when I was 10, lived with my dad, who I idolized. Um, when I was 14, he left by meeting somebody else and moved in with my mom, lived with her. She passed when I was 19, right after high school. By the time I graduated high school, I really thought, I am doomed. I'm going to live a miserable, lonely life and die young. Oh, gosh. I, yeah, I think I did everything I could to do that. And I lived that way. Unfortunately, I uh, was smart and I was a restaurant uh, person. So I started as a dishwasher and ended up getting promoted into management when I was 22 and kept on getting promoted at the same time that I was living a life of wrecked relationships, uh, difficult uh, emotional times. It was probably depressed the whole time, even though I never really realized it. Mm -hmm. And I remember sitting one day in the basement of this restaurant I was managing at age 26 thinking, I can run this multi-million dollar establishment very easily. Why can't I manage the little details of my miserable little life? And I thought, huh, there's absolutely no reason I shouldn't be able to. And then I had a second thought, which was, why does my life have to revolve around the cycle of broken relationship and pain? Why do I have to have the same experience tomorrow as I did today? And I had an answer to that. And the answer was, I don't. Mm. That it's because I wake up every morning and I tell myself the same painful, sad story over again. And that's my experience. Maybe I can tell myself a different story. Maybe I don't have to continue just playing out the cards I was dealt. So with that, I really launched into a period of what amounted to eight years of hard work on myself. I did a codependency treatment program for a week when I was 27. I think it was 1991. We might come back to it. I went and... Uh, worked on the homecoming book, uh, which is inner child work. I saw John Bradshaw give a presentation on that in 1991. That's amazing. Really started going heavy. Found a of alcoholics, codependents anonymous, and a great therapist. 
until years later, I was in my young 30s and I started looking around at all my fellow restaurant managers. And I had the thought of, oh my goodness, did I ever make a conscious choice to spend my career cooking people food on New Year's Eve while everybody else is having a good time? Mm-hmm. And I thought, no, I never made a conscious choice for my life. I simply arrived at where I was by indecision and being handed a series of yes or no options. Would you like to do this? Would you like this job? Would you like that job? And it's just all yes or no with no plan. And I thought if I could do anything I wanted with my life, what would I do? And I looked back across my story and thought, I'm pretty lucky that I made it. I'm healthy. I'm psychologically fairly intact. I can now, after much work, have healthy relationships. If I could do anything, I would help for at-risk adolescents transition to happy, healthy, productive adult lives Mm -hmm. and go down good tracks. Because most people, like me, appear resilient. But the only reason that is is because the other 10 schmucks who didn't make it are dead or in prison. Mm. Right? And so the people we want to reach, they're people you don't hear about. So I decided to become a psychologist. So at age of 34, I resigned my restaurant management career and started as a college freshman and went straight through and earned my doctorate when I was 44, 10 years later, and then finished up and ended up going into clinical psychology and becoming a professor starting private practice. Wow. That's an amazing story, Hal. And there's two things about what you said that really strike me. Number one, you, like a lot of people, I think, who go into a helping profession, have their own personal experiences to draw from where they can see like, you know, what did I struggle with and how did this help create the problems I struggled with and give me a better understanding of some of the clients that I I help. And you have those kinds of experiences. And the second thing is like a lot of the patients I work with are very, very successful in a lot of the areas but the one place that they have the hardest time is in their personal um, life with intimacy and vulnerability and relationships. And they have a hard time figuring out like, why can't I get that right when everything else is working? So I think that's a common story as well. It is the great equalizer. And that's where attachment comes into play. Yeah. Yeah. The way I got into attachment therapy um, was I was actually looking once I got into school and I had to find a thing to do my undergraduate honors thesis on, I thought, You know, I was not resilient as a young person. My wife had a very similar background. She put herself through college, supported herself, did not have any of those issues. I thought, what's the difference? And I came across this uh, literature on hope or the belief that a positive future is likely because you can think of the pathways to get there, the strategies to reach your pathways, and the motivation to actually implement. So I was researching hope by a guy named Rick Snyder, and he had this statement in one of his books that said, hope develops in the context of secure attachments to supportive adults and child. And I thought, that's it. If I'm going to understand how to develop hope in young people, I need to understand how it develops naturally through this attachment mechanism. And then I delved heavily into attachment theory. I went to the University of Kansas and studied hope and positive psychology with Rick Snyder for five years. And that's where I became immersed in attachment as the genesis of resiliency and hope. Sure. So let's talk a little bit about attachment then. What does attachment mean for the layperson? Like when we say attachment, what are we talking about? And can we talk a little bit about different styles of attachment that children start encountering as they grow up in their family environment? Absolutely. 
So attachment, we're really talking about personality theory. And when a psychologist says personality, as you know, right, we're not talking about somebody has a great personality or they're charismatic, <laughs> right? We're talking about how you characteristically think, feel, perceive information and behave across your lifespan, right? So the indelible way that you interact with the world. How that happens is you learn to interact with the world through your environment and childhood. And the environment is your parents, right? So attachment theory is an evolutionary based theory that goes off the notion that it's not a matter of if you connect and stay attached to your parents, you have to. And you have to because of 100,000 years ago, your parent left you sitting on a hillside while they went off and did something else, you would be dead and not live the pass on your genes. So there's an evolutionary imperative for attachment. There is strong and actually strongest evolutionary imperative, which I believe is actually the core human motivator is anxiety, Mm. right? So nature had to find a way to keep you close enough to your parent that you could get to them in the event of a threat. So if you heard a wrestling in the brush, instead of turning to see if it's a lion, you would instantly take an anxiety hit. The anxiety would impel you to run towards your parent. You jump on their back and hopefully they can scramble up a tree before the lion actually jumped out and eats you. Yeah. And you you have the sense that your parents are going to protect you from that lion. Hopefully. Right? <laughs> yes. Half of us do. So if you think about it, the kids who didn't run from the lion, they all perished. Therefore, we are all the descendants of anxious people. <laughs> and so the way an attachment scenario goes, when you're young, let's say an 18-month-old, you stay close to your parents. So I, I'm a psychologist, and if I had a person bring their child in with them, it might take an 18-month-old an hour to get up enough guts to walk over and hand me a toy, right? They do little micro steps. They look at you, they look away. They take a step, they go back to the parent. They take two steps, they go back to the parent. Three steps, giggle laugh, turn around, flush, run back to the parent. What they're doing is they're running them back to reestablish proximity to their parent who is the attachment figure, right? So it's their secure base. And the secure base has some specific function. So what the child's doing, it's actually an emotion regulation dance. Anxiety builds, builds, builds as they go away from the parent, becomes too uncomfortable. And when it's uncomfortable enough, it impels them to run back and reestablish connection with the parent that lowers their anxiety. Then when they're ready, they go off and explore again. Now that requires the parent to do several specific functions, right? They have to be consistent. So the child always has to know, I'm gonna get the same positive response when I seek that comfort, right? They have to be available emotionally. I'm actually available to comfort you. I'm not preoccupied or distracted or angry or anything else. They have to be responsive. Responsive means I can actually, if I'm the parent, perceive what my child is going through. Oh, you're scared or you skinned your knee and you're hurt, right? Then the parent provides comfort. So the parent might say, oh, you fell down. Come here, honey. Give the child a hug. That soothes. Once the soothing happens, the parent upregulates. Their voice goes, raises and says, you'll be okay. It's all right. And they give them strategies to go off and explore again. And off the kid goes until five minutes later, they fall on their bum again and back they come, right? So there's a circle. And across early childhood, you might have that circle of, you know, going off to explore, meeting a threat or falling down or getting anxious, come running back. You might do that, what, 
20, 30 times a day. Anybody who's a parent knows this. Yeah. Right. When you're 10, you might do it several times a day. You're starting to go off with sleep lovers with friends. Gradually, when you become adolescent, you start to transition those bonds with the security from the parent to your relationship partners and other good friends, maybe a teacher, coach, mentor. And eventually you're able to go off and explore the world. Mm -hmm. The issue is only half of us, 55%, according to my research and reviews of the literature, had that secure parent. Mm. Right. So that's called secure attachment style. Right. So those kids are going to be, they're going to grow up being leaving the world's a safe and predictable place. I'm lovable. Other people are willing to provide me support when needed. And I'm going to be okay. Right. Mm -hmm. So when they hit an obstacle, they have this internalized memory of the parent being for them, there for them. And they talk themselves through that. So when they have a setback, they taste to themselves. It's okay. That hurt, but I'll be all right. It's going to be better next time. They're going to upregulate themselves. I'm going to be okay. All I got to do is get back out there and try again. They'll strategize, think of some new ways to approach the problem, and off they go to explore. Mm -hmm. So at this point, the person has internalized a memory of the secure parent that's called symbolic proximity seeking. Got it. So this is basically day after day, week after week, month, year after year, a child is getting this kind of message from their parents um, that makes them feel secure. That, sec that security blanket is there for me. My parents are there to help protect me. I can explore and come back. And there's a mental model. You said um, exactly that this is sort of my model of the world is that I can be safe and there's people there to take care of me when I need them. Right. In a moderate, uh, mild to moderate stressing situations, somebody in their mid 40s, right, will be able to draw on that memory to soothe themselves and go out and explore the world. Got it. So that's 55%. Yeah. What about the other 45%? How? The other 45% have to compensate in some way. These compensations we're gonna are, are patterns, and we can call them insecure attachment styles, right? So each of these are styles of attaching to the parent. So we talked about the secure one. There are three other ones. They're called avoidant. An adult that terms is termed anxious. It can be a little confusing to the layperson getting new to this because the adult labels from the scientific literature are different from the childhood. Mm -hmm. Okay, so adult is called dismissing. Child is avoidant. Same thing. Then you have adult preoccupied and child anxious. And then you have fearful. So three styles, dismissing, avoidant, preoccupied, anxious, and then fearful. Mm -hmm. right. And each of those have very specific parenting types that revolve around them. And they're adaptive in childhood, but they become maladaptive in adulthood and exude quite a price, exert quite a price on adult relationships. They're adaptive in childhood, I take it, because they serve to protect the child. I have a parent who's not taking care of me or protecting me the way they need to. I've got to find some way to protect myself. That's exactly right. Right. And But they're maladaptive in adulthood because why? They're maladaptive in adulthood because your new relationship partner does not have the same style as your parent. Got it. And because adult love is conditional, right? So- Parental love is supposed to be unconditional, and it is to a degree. Um, a healthy adult is only going to put up with somebody's stuff to a certain extent mm -hmm. before they get tired. Right. So your your partner's not every time you stub your toe isn't going to come and say, oh, you have a little boo-boo. Oh, let me kiss it and make it feel better. 
I'm exaggerating here, but adults don't act like that. Yes. And when it seems like magic, but what happens is in childhood, we're going to tend to mirror in order to get by and in order to acclimate to the parental environment, we're going to mirror our parents' attachment style or personality. Mm. But when we get into relationships, opposite opposite the track. So you're actually going to pick a dating partner who has an opposite attachment style. And that's where we get into real rough waters, especially if people are unaware of the emotion regulation that dance they're doing with each other. That seems to manifest as relationship conflict. You can have two people who love each other, who are actually attracted to each other and great people and can end up hating each other's guts and thinking the other person has it out with them. Mm-hmm. So is this a situation where two people with insecure attachment styles tend to be attracted to each other in relationships? Yes. Um, dismissing people typically pick anxious, avo- uh, anxious preoccupied people for dating partners and vice versa. The anxious preoccupied person will pick somebody who's avoided and dismissed. Mm-hmm. If we have an insecure attachment style, we're going to pick the person who presses our buttons the most. You can view it as a, you know, a magnet for pain, or you could view it as we're picking people who are going to be our impetus for growth, who are going to encourage us maximally to overcome our childhood maladaptive. Well, that's a nice way of thinking about it, but I'm sure that the picking doesn't happen because the person is consciously thinking, I'm going to pick somebody that'll help challenge me to grow. So what is it that's actually happening? Why uh, these types of people pick each other as partners, as adults? Well, let's understand a little bit. Let me go into the childhood piece first, I think it'd be easier to understand. Okay. So if, if you have an adult and the parent has uh, an attitude of little boys don't cry or suck it up buttercup, kind of tough luck. And we often see that in Germany, for example, or Ireland, you know, some of those cultures where life was hard and you just got mm-hmm. to get on. Stiff upper lip type of thing. That's right. Absolutely. Right. So if you think about it, let's say little Johnny comes home from school and says, daddy, I'm sad. I got picked on on the playground today and I don't have any friends, right? And dad, who's avoidant, says, oh no, little boys don't cry. The next time somebody picks on you, you just stand up and you tell them right where it's at, right? And you don't let them see you hurt. Don't be vulnerable, don't cry. And I'm not gonna coddle you here, right? Suck it up and get back out there. The kid learns, oh my goodness, this is painful, I'm, I'm hurt. From what happened at school and i'm going to get no comfort from my dad so i have two options here i can ignore anything that might upset me socially so i'm going to learn to tune out and not notice when people reject me that way i never have to deal with it if i can't turn it out because it's too in my face and i feel that negative emotion i'm going to suppress it and try to push it down after the fact so i'm going to learn to use denial and suppression to evade negative emotions and I'm going to come home from school and dad's going to say, how was school today? And I'm going to give the classic avoidant response. Fine. <laughs> right. It's all good. Right. Yeah. And so you grow up into an adult and that person is going to practice that for many years to become the point where it's unconscious. They're going to be a little blind to negative social cues and other people because they're used to ignoring those things. And they're going to suppress negative emotions, especially when it's geared toward them. So if they get into a relationship with somebody who wants to talk about relationship problems and talk about their issues, they're going to shut down right away and say, no, 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 I have no problem. My problem is that you're upset. Mm -hmm. 
And the person who's usually upset in Ellis Schiff is the person with the anxious preoccupied style. That develops when the parent's inconsistent, sometimes really available and warm, sometimes cold and rejecting, like a little really moody parent. So the child doesn't know what to expect. Not at all. One day you come home from school and mom says, let's bake cookies. And the other day you come home from school and mom says, go to your room and don't let the door slam me in the butt in the way, right? So that's very painful for the child. So the child learns to become a little chameleon. So they'll come in the house and they'll learn to look at mom's facial cues and see if they can pick up something in body language, voice inflection, or facial expression. And mind you, this is happening really from the time the kid's an infant, right? A newborn. So they're going to learn to see if this is a good day or a, a you know hug day or a bad rejection day and alter their behaviors accordingly. So they literally become preoccupied with other people's emotions and expressions. And um, they give up their own sense of autonomy and independence expression to give the other person what they want. It's almost a definition of codependency. That person is going to grow up being hypervigilant for threat cues and for social uh, rejection on other people's faces, the opposite of the avoidant person. They're also going to be very quick to strong emotions. So if they do pick up a rejection cue, they're going to be activated very quickly because if they go away and they back off like the avoidant person, they don't trust the parents actually going to be there when they come back, right? Because mom's unpredictable. So they're going to learn, I have to stay close. I have to keep her in you know, proximity. So they become kind of clingy and always approach the problem and always try to stay proximal to the other person. Like that worked with your parent, but when you become an adult, and you're easily triggered by negative social stuff, which could just be a facial expression. It could be with my clients as often that somebody doesn't get a text in 15 minutes. A boyfriend or girlfriend says, I'll text you in 10 minutes. And a half an hour later, the person's pacing all around the room, you know, trying to figure out why they're getting rejected and blown off by the relationship part. So what's the piece for the avoidant person in the relationship with the anxious person who's sort of reading them and pursuing and getting activated when the avoidant person is avoiding. What's the payoff for that person in that relationship? Well, remember, it doesn't actually happen. So usually if you take an anxious person and they're not in relationship as an adult, they're going to feel pretty calm and secure and balanced. Mm. Same as an avoidant person. They're not activated yet. So the dismissing person meets the anxious person and they're attracted to each other. Neither one knows what the other person's attachment style is. They're on their first date, right? Anxious people uh, don't like ambiguity. And because they always approach scenarios and problems and relationship things, they tend to talk a lot and overly elaborate. So the anxious person starts to talk. And the avoidant person sitting there thinking, ooh, this is great. I'm having a <laughs> date with this person. And I actually don't have to talk a lot about myself because yeah. they're filling all the space. Got it. Right. And so they are very charismatic and they act really interested in what the anxious person is saying. And the anxious person is just eating this up thinking, wow, this person's really into me. They really like this. And that's the biggest attraction for an anxious person is that person likes me. I don't need to take any risks. I'm just sitting here doing, not having to do a whole lot for this person to show an interest and make the effort. That's right. So they're, well, they're both doing that. So the anxious person is thinking, wow, this person's really listening intently 
lighting up, asking me more questions, they're into me. Wow, that's the best thing in the whole world. Their heart is just expanding and they're feeling lovely. And the avoidant person is thinking, oh, I get to be in the comfort presence of this person I'm into and I do like, and I don't have to talk about myself. Mm -hmm. So that goes date one, then date two, date three. And it's not until they get a little more serious and start to commit that the anxious person realizes, huh, this person's actually not sharing anything about themselves. <laughs> yeah. And they start to press a little bit and they start to wonder, why aren't you asking me really deep questions about myself or how I feel? And when they start to press, the avoidant person starts to shut down a little bit. They start to be a little ambivalent. They don't ask the questions. And then the anxious person starts to pick up on threat. Right. They might hear a too long a pause and a voice. They might see the other person look away. That's going to trigger their adrenaline and uh, their emotional system neurologically. Their brain's going to scatter and they're going to start to think of all these threats and they're going to really start coming after the avoidant person. Mm. And the avoidant person is going to start to back off and run, thinking, You're a crazy, needy, neurotic person. Right. And there's the classic dynamic in that kind of relationship. Yeah. That's right. And nothing really happened other than they're doing a big emotion regulation dance with each other, triggering each other, but both people are totally unaware this is happening. They think the other person is simply being mean. The anxious person will think the avoidant person is being callous and uncaring. They're not, right? Mm -hmm. They're they're trying to be remain present and trying to care, but they simply can't because neurologically their emotional system has learned to automatically cut off and shut down when hit with a relationship tracker. Right, got it. So I'd like to spend a little bit of time talking, Hal. You've written some great blog posts for psychology today, quite a number of them that are amazing. And I found a few that I looked at where you talked a bit about attachment styles and things that come up for people in interpersonal relationships and dynamics to look out for. I found one of your blog posts in particular called Your Ticket to Ride. You list several points here that I think are really interesting to look out for as a person with an attachment style, which might cause them some problems in interpersonal relationships as an adult. So the first section that you talked about was emotional barometer not being calibrated. Could you tell us a mm -hmm. little bit about that and how that interacts with uh, a person in an inter interpersonal relationship? Absolutely. By the way, the second part of the title is the social emotional price of your childhood. There you go. Thank you. Right. Which is just what we've been talking about, that these things work in childhood because you have to believe your parent loves you and cares about you. And these styles enable you to do that. They enable you to stay close and not get rejected and to regulate your emotions as much as possible. But there's a high price for that. So a lot of this work on emotion regulation comes out of a guy named Peter Fonagy, who's at the University College of London. And Fonagy specializes in self awareness and self-perception, right? Uh, we call it mentalizing or reflective functioning. Mm -hmm. So when you're little, if you have a secure parent, your parent reads you pretty well. And if you fall down and skin your knee, your parent's going to go, oh, you skinned your knee. That looks painful. They're going to show a painful expression on their face. They're going to make a noise. Ooh. Mm -hmm. And the kid learns how they feel by looking at the parent's face. So if you have a toddler, you know this. When a toddler falls down, they don't start crying right away. They actually look at your face first to see what your reaction and what you're going to signal them. 
Yeah. And if you go, ooh, that hurt, the child is going to go, oh, there's a word, ooh, that's how I feel. And that hurt, that pained expression on my parent's face. Yes, that's how I feel. Now the kid's going to start to cry. So there's a mirroring of the emotional experience of the child. And that's how we learn about our emotions. Yeah. Right? Now, so if you're raised by a secure person who mirrors you well, you're going to tend to be well calibrated. And you don't want 100% mirroring. You actually, Fonagy says, want to miss as much as 50%. Because if you say, ooh, that hurt, the kid might go, I'm okay, right? And, and the kid and the parent learn to go back and forth and realize there is no one set reality. People different perceptions, and we can learn to co-regulate. Now, if you're raised by an anxious parent, the anxious parent is going to tend to accentuate negative emotional experiences, right? So they're going to be a little too much. Oh, ah, that's that's awful, and really come into your space and try to fix it, right? So the child's going to develop a high level of emotionality, and they're going to learn when something's wrong, I need to fix it right away. It's not not okay to have this mm -hmm. negative state sitting on the table. But one of the prices is becoming overly calibrated and overly reactive to stimuli, especially social ones. So that's on the overreactive side. Now, on the underreactive side, if you go, oh, I skinned my knee, I'm really hurt, and you look at mom or dad, and they're saying, they're going, you're fine, which we often hear people say, the kid's going to say, oh, I feel like I'm in pain, my knee's bleeding, but that face says I'm fine, and it has no emotional expression on the face. Huh. Maybe. Maybe I am fine. I don't know how I feel. I'm not quite sure, right? You're going to have a person who grows up who underplays and underregulates their emotional experience relative to what happened, right? So their calibration is going to be off in terms of they're going to be more flat. The anxious person is going to be more exaggerated. So what's an example of that for an adult personality style and how one is sort of managing uh, in their social emotional world? Yeah. So a secure person, let's say something happens with a boyfriend or girlfriend in a dating relationship and they pick up a mild rejection, like their boyfriend or girlfriend is texting an ex, right? And they they pick up on that. They're likely to think, oh, that's uncomfortable. That sucks. Unpleasant. Don't like it. But maybe there's a reason. Maybe there's something I can deal with. I'm going to feel reasonably bothered, right? But I'm not going to blow up and make a big seen out of this. Mm -hmm. I can regulate myself and my calibration, my emotional response is appropriate for what happened. An anxious person is going to see that text and think, oh, I, I shouldn't react, but oh my God, maybe they're going out with somebody else. And within five minutes, they're probably going to take a major adrenaline hit. The brain part for that is called the amygdala. We could talk for a whole hour about the amygdala. Sure. That's going to hijack their thought processes. And they're going to be flooded with all kinds of other thoughts of rejection experiences that they've had of other relationships that have gone bad, anticipating the panic. I mean, the, the pain they're going to feel when they get crushed by their person. Now they're going to confront the person out loud, maybe in public because they can't, they can't stow it. They relate mm -hmm. their emotions are uncalibrated. They're way over the top relative to what actually happened. And they're going to initiate a self-fulfilling prophecy. They're afraid of rejection, so they're going to behave in a way that actually listen. Yeah, I've had I've had patients, for example, who something happens, a work-related thing happens, 
and they just get activated and stirred up and upset. And before they know it, they're sending out these really, really angry emails that they can't take back. And later on found out that what they feared or what they were upset about wasn't really actually the reality at all. But so much gets missed through texting and emails, the meaning of it, they just can't contain themselves to hold back and find out what's really going on. And that's a great example. That's a perfect example of being uncalibrated. And I gotta tell you, texting especially is a real problem when there's miscalibration in terms of emotion. Big time because they're so it's so easy to miss stuff. A text can be one sentence long and can be interpreted in so many different ways. Right. There's so much ambiguity. Yeah. Right. And you know, the avoidant person, when they see that text, by the way, they're not gonna do anything and they're gonna say, Oh, that's that's a nothing. I didn't see it, didn't see it, didn't notice, right? And they're going to get fairly off down the road before they realize their partner's been unhappy and cheating on them for the past six months. And they never noticed, mm-hmm. right? Got it. Because they never, never interceded. Um, and we didn't talk about, you know, fearful attachment, which usually takes form in the context of more um, childhood trauma or really strong exposure to volatility, uh, scary parents, maybe emotionally ill, really emotionally ill parents, not just depressed, but totally flat they can become so dysregulated that they simultaneously will act out with the anxiety expression and avoid and run away at the same time. Mm. So it can be very, very confusing for everybody involved and very chaotic and volatile. Sure. Let's talk a little bit about this idea of faulty roadmap for predicting cause and effect linkages. So we all create roadmaps. The, the word that psychologists like to use under social scientists generally is schema, right? A schema is a roadmap for predicting cause and effect relationships in the world. So if you're raised in a secure environment with supportive, secure parents, you learn that when certain things happen, you can predict how it's going to play out, right? So the whole reason for like ruminating is really, you know, ruminating where you think about something over and over and over again, is a way to try to run scenarios. So our brain, as we look at things that happen, X, Y, and Z happen in a relationship, how am I going to behave in response? Do I have a roadmap for this? We all have templates in our heads or schemas, and we will actually play out a scenario based on that roadmap to see how things are likely going to turn out for us. And then we choose a strategy. You know, I'm not going to say anything or I'm going to confront my partner or I'm going to be more loving. I'm going to be clingy, whatever that may be. If you're raised in an environment that's inconsistent, like with anxious attachment, where you can't predict how the parent is necessarily going to behave, right? Or with an avoidant parent where the emotional response is really incongruent with what actually happens, you don't have those cause and effect linkages. You're likely to infer, for example, a lot more pain from an experience that might actually be the case. So in the text example, you might think, I'm going to be rejected. My person is going to leave me for their ex, and I'm going to be devastated and heartbroken, and no one will be there to comfort me, and I'll have no friends. I'm going to fall into a deep depression, and this is going to go on for years, and I'm going to lose my job, and ah! Right. Right. Who wouldn't be horribly depressed and anxious thinking like that? Yeah. Well, and and I imagine even on a much simpler level, 
somebody who has a hard time predicting cause and effect might say, there's some things that are bothering me that I want to talk to my friend about, or that my friend doesn't know about, or somebody in my social network, but I'm so afraid to say anything because they're going to hate me afterwards. I'm going to lose the friend. We're not going to be friends anymore. They're not going to be able to forgive me. Just really overblowing the potential consequences of talking with somebody about something that's important. Bingo. Exactly. And on the other hand, someone with an avoidance style is actually going to have a roadmap that says everything's okay Mm. when it's not. I worked with many couples where one member of the couple is saying, I'm unhappy. I want some more affection and hugs and reassurance and comfort. And the avoidance person says, we're fine. We don't have a problem. Our only problem is that you're upset all the time. Right. And that probably sounds really dismissive. You're not listening to me and what my needs are. You're not taking me seriously. That's right. And so the dismissing person's roadmap says, there's no there there. Don't even look. Right. So they're going down that road of everything's fine. In the meantime, I've seen it happen over a course of years. The other person, usually the anxious one, is gradually leaving the relationship and developing love interest elsewhere. When they finally do leave, the dismissing person is totally surprised in ambush and thinks, oh my goodness, I didn't see this coming. And as a psychologist, I'm sitting there saying, she's been telling you for the past two years that she's unhappy and wants this stuff from you, right? And you chose not to see it. Right. right. And you may, maybe that person is choosing to see things that superficially look like everything is fine. Hey, we have a house. We have good income. We take our vacations. Everything is fine here. What's what's going on? But the thing that's lacking really is the emotional experience of the partner who's really reaching out and needing something from that dismissive person. Yeah, that's right. And that part is not on the dismissing person's roadmap. Mm-hmm. Yeah, got it. How about this idea where a person has a hard time accurately reading when somebody is a safe and available person to them in a relationship? Yeah, so that goes back to reflective functioning and mentalizing or being able to read other people. Anxious people in particular who really crave an attachment figure will tend to try to infer and make an attachment figure out of somebody who's not really there. I may often have a relation, a conversation with a young client who will say, I can't believe, you know, he or she left me. They were the one, they were my, my true sweetheart. And I say, Oh, was he or she your boyfriend or girlfriend? And they'll say, yes. And I'll say, so you had the conversation that you were dating and going steady. And they'll say, no. And I say, so how do you know that the person was your boyfriend? If you never had the conversation about whether you were actually exclusive. And the fact is they never did, right? They want that person to be there and they project onto them that love interest. And men, I call it goddess worship. So they project the ideal woman onto the woman, right? And have certain expectations or the woman might project Prince Charming and Savior onto the guy. That's not really the other person. Sure, they have some of those attributes, but not fully. Right. That example you're giving is, of a relationship that's maybe not actually really a relationship, but there's some fantasy that there is. But does this also work in the sense that there actually may be a, you know, an official relationship, like with a lowercase o, but uh, the the choice of the partner is not really emotionally the available person for them? It's often who you want the other person to be. So going back to the anxious slash dismissing coupling example, the 
anxious person will say, this person was so wonderful when I met them. They were charismatic and warm and caring. And then they turn into this awful, uncaring schmuck. And I'll look at my client and say, no, it looks to me like they were always that uncaring schmuck. You just didn't see it. Right? right. You're too busy eating up the attention and talking about yourself and exploring and yourself and your feelings about it. You never noticed that they were never actually fully in the relationship. Yeah. So you must have had lots of conversations with your patients, Al, in the past, because I know I certainly have, where there's been a, a person who has had a number of unsuccessful relationships or relationship attempts, and they're taking stock. They're looking at like, what is going on here? What is going on with me in these relationships? And what is going on with these people that I keep trying to date that don't work out for me? What do you talk to them about in terms of what they should be looking out for in potential partners that would make more sense for them? Yeah, so we, we have conversations much like the one you and I just, just, just engaged in. Sure. So I, I actually assess attachment files and all my clients on intake um, and give them feedback and we talk about it. If they're in a relationship, we often try to get beat on their uh, partner's attachment style. There are certain markers that you can give people to look for in the process of dating and meeting people. For example, a stereotypical, very common dismissing marker is a lack of memory of early relationships in childhood. So if you ask a dismissing person, so tell me about your childhood. Like before you were 10, what was life like for you? They'll say, it was great. It was fine. Wonderful. And you'll say, oh, give, can you give me a specific memory? They'll say, I, I really don't remember anything from childhood. That is so common. And Anthony, I've done it. I've tried it, tested it over and over and over again. And it's almost always worn out. The anxious person, you say, so tell me about your childhood before you were 10. And they'll say, well, I was born. Right. And they're going to give you so much information. Half an hour later, you're sitting there saying, oh, my gosh, (laughs) we're only at three years old. (laughs) That's right. Right. Um, So the anxious person is going to take overly long conversational turns, not notice when it's your turn to talk. They're going to tend to maintain resentments towards past love figures and express those. It's called revolving anger. It's very common. Right. And they're going to still bring past hurts into the present. The avoidant person is really going to give you vanilla. Everything is good. My family was perfect. No problems there. A secure person is actually going to give you the good, the bad, and the ugly. Right. And and all this research on this part, by the way, comes out of the adult attachment interview uh, by Maine Kaplan and Solomon. And that way of assessing attachment style, which is through an interview with adults, you really get markers for coding the discourse for the verbal patterns of people. Got it. Um, and it is pretty pretty easy, actually, um, to peg someone's attachment style easy on. Early so on. you're coaching your patients often to try to do their own layperson's version of the interview so they can get a sense of how emotionally available this person might be in a relationship with them, especially if they've had a lot of unsuccessful relationships in the past with these kinds of things. Exactly. I'm teaching my, my job is to put myself out of work, basically. So I'm teaching my patients, my clients, to become experts in personality and attachment theory themselves. And they really do. They, they learn the language. They learn to have conversations with their partners that makes the unco- previously unconscious and unknown conscious and discussable. 
They develop a common language that they can move forward across conflict, and they can actually ask their needs to be met in a healthy and productive way. So how about this idea of putting success and work ahead of relationships and people who rely on you? Yeah, so that's a, a dismissing attachment piece. Um, you know, the whole thing with dismissing folks is the belief, for the, the parents who discourage that neediness and clinging behavior and asking for your reassurance, they also are really, really encouraging of achievement and grades and sports and work. So the same dad who says, boys don't cry, suck it up, little Johnny. He's going to be out there in the soccer field going, that's my boy. Yeah. Getting really excited, you know, about his star kid. Those parents often don't tell the kid directly how proud they are to them of them, but they brag to everybody else about their child. So the child learns there's a premature push for autonomy and independence by the parent. The child learns I have my worth in life by being a winner, by being an achievement goal-oriented striver, right? I'm going to have my spouse is going to look like that out of that magazine. And I'm going to drive that car. I'm going to have that job and make that much money. And what happens is this is actually an indirect way of getting social needs met for validation. So when I work with a client like that and I say, so tell me, I know, you know, your biggest goal is to leave like each of your children a million dollars, you know, when you are old and you pass. What does that mean for you if you can do that? When you keep on arrowing down and asking what that means to them, you'll get at respect, admiration, and trust. And then I look at my client who's working their butt off as an executive, making all this money. And I'll say, you do realize those are social goals, not work goals, right? Respect, admiration, trust. And then you highlight, you could actually get those needs met directly by actually risking talking to people and telling them how you feel and having relationship. Right. Those dismissing people develop the belief that other people value, respect, admire them, look up to them, and want to be with them without actually having to risk the direct personal experience that could expose them to vulnerable feelings. Got it. And I imagine in interpersonal relationships, the partners and maybe even the friends that some of these people tend to choose are based on the social cachet that they bring and not so much about the interpersonal relationship that they're having, the intimacy they're having with those people. And I, right. I, I've got to imagine that that probably creates some problems in their relationships down the road when that when there's a lack of intimacy uh, between the two people to keep them together. And we often see those break down when the kids go off to college mm -hmm. and, and these you know high power couples, right? Kids go off to college and the spouse is sitting there realizing that, oh my goodness, the children provided a buffer. So the more anxious, less avoidant, achievement-oriented spouse was focused on the family, not realizing that the avoidant person had become a satellite of the family, but weren't really in it. Now the kids are gone and they're sitting there and they realize, wow, I don't have much of a relationship. What's going on here? And then it really comes apart. Right. That sounds very unsatisfying at that point. We're, we're two people now living together. The kids are gone. And we're just drinking our coffee and and not having much to connect with. Right. And the avoidant person is perfectly happy with that. Yeah. It's the, the anxious. They're not happy because the anxious person's coming at them. Right. And won't stop telling them that they're unhappy 
and their needs aren't being met. And the avoidant person is like, what? We're sitting here having coffee, reading the paper. Everything's good. Yeah. Right? We're good. I'm good. What's the problem? So let's talk a little bit about sexual relationships, because I know that this comes up a lot. I know it does with my patients, this idea about uh, sexual intimacy and sexuality, especially you see this a lot in sort of younger people who are trying to come into themselves um, and, and understand relationships. And I know that you talk a lot about people who mistake love for sexuality or feel like maybe they can have sex without love getting involved. And tell us about how all of this fits into this attachment model for adults. Yeah. So I don't really see this manifest until people are a little older. I think um, hormones are so high in adolescence and you know, they're so their engines are revving at such a high level that nobody really notices this. But by the time people are in their thirties, anxious people, really develop a sense of craving that strong emotionality. So they experience strong emotions. They always have, right? And therefore, they have this belief that if I don't experience a really strong, intense emotion, that there's no there there. So they're going to tend to mistake infatuation for love. As a matter of fact, they've done a lot of experiments in psychology, really cool ones. Like take young men into the dentist, and they're working with a dental hygienist. It's always the same dental hygienist, but it's different 100 boys, right? 19-year-olds. And then the dental hygienist would drop them in the chair. So mm. half the guys, he dropped in the chair. Boom, they get shocked. You know, they just fell a foot, right? Yeah. The other guys, nothing happened. And then all they do later is they have them rate how attractive the dental hygienist is. <laughs> the guys who got dropped rate her as significantly more attractive. Now, that research has been repeated. In various wow. contexts, people misattribute, and attribute is an explanation. They misattribute anxiety for attraction in the early phase of a relationship. Huh. So this is anxiety that the boys are feeling having been dropped, their emotions are activated, and that, that experience gets transferred to an infatuation and an interpretation of interest. Yes, because they don't know why they're Got it. They've done okay. another experiment back in the age when you could do a lot of more risky stuff in psychological experiments. The, the Milgram era. Yeah. Yeah. Where they uh, give kids amphetamine and Kool-Aid, telling them there's an experiment in the next room. Half the kids just get plain Kool-Aid. Half the kids, they get Kool-Aid laced with amphetamine. Right. A woman comes in. They think she's just part of the experiment too. But again, it's always the same woman. They take them in the next room. And all the experiment is, is rate how attractive she is. And the guys who didn't know they had the amphetamine will rate her as much more attractive because they don't know why their, their system mm -hmm. is all wired up. And so the only explanation their brain can come up with is, hey, that woman just walked in the office. Huh, I'm excited. Yeah. It must be her. Right? So that's so re really, really fascinating uh, research, Hal. And the concept is really important because I, I guess the point is that people feel things all the time, but if they're not aware of what they're feeling and why, it's very easy to just misattribute it to something that's not really going on. Or maybe- Those misattributions are huge. Yeah, right. got it. So I just want to, I want to clarify. So the anxious person is going to, the avoidant person is going to make them anxious all the time because they're always putting a little threat cue on the table with that ambiguity. So the anxious person is going to be more and more attracted to them and want that closeness and intimacy. Right. 
the avoidant person is going to misattribute those bids for closeness and intimacy as a attempt to smother and to own, and they're going to start to distance, right? So the avoidant person will actually start to shut down. Ironically, therefore, the anxious person is going to um, mistake sex for love because it gives them that emotional high, right? The intensity that they mistake for love. The avoidant person, love is a threat because they mistake that for something that is going to smother them. So guys who are really avoiding, I use guys because usually they're the ones, not always, right? I do have women who are quite dismissing in my practice. They'll be very much very sexual, but when the relationship becomes real and it becomes about love, they can tend to go cold. They will say they love their partner deeply. I totally believe it. They will no longer be interested sexually, and they may engage in sex out of uh, obligation or because they think they have to. They're not sexually impotent. They can absolutely sexualize other non-love people. I was going to say objects because they view other people at that point as a sexual object, not as a whole person, mm -hmm. right? And that's why avoidant people often go, no, I was going to use the word frigid, in romantic relationships that have become real in terms of love. And they may be prone to want to stray elsewhere because they don't connect sex with love. Yeah. So how do you help people navigate the whole world of sex then? I know it's complicated. Like as psychologists, we don't want to be judgmental, right? You sort of always feel funny saying, no, don't have sex with people. You sound sort of prude and judgmental. These days, people are tending to wanting to be more open-minded about their sexuality and feeling sexually liberated and whatnot. And like, we don't want to crush that. But at the same time, coming from an attachment perspective, it's very easy to see the potential emotional damage or danger that can happen when people are just having sex willy-nilly and not emotionally prepared for the consequences. So how do you navigate this one, Hal? Because I know I have a tough time with it sometimes. Yeah, absolutely. I, I have, again, the conversation talking. And don't forget, I've already, at this point, told my clients about attachment styles and done some psychoeducation about it. Sure. Um, so we have these talks about uh, attraction, right? And if you have sex with a person early and you're preoccupied, are you going to conflate that with love? And are, is the anxiety that you feel then going to bond you to this person before you know whether they're actually an emotionally safe dating partner for you? Intellectually, the preoccupied anxious person is going to get that and will tend to agree. It's harder for them to pull off, especially if they're in their you know, 20s, early 30s. Yeah. The avoidant person, I help to prepare them to anticipate their own responses. Because the typical pattern is an avoidant person will tell me, hey, I met a new person. This person is wonderful. I'm into them. They like me. And I'm just sitting there thinking, great, my client finally met somebody who might be compatible. And then three weeks later, it's still going good. I'm like, oh, my goodness, maybe this time. Four weeks later, they're complaining about the person's hair or, you know, something really subtle. And I'm like, uh-oh, here we go. Right. Five weeks later, they're complaining about something else and they just start this little mental nitpicking. And what they're doing is the other persons become too emotionally available and they're starting to distance, but they don't know they're doing that. Right. And they end up totally shutting down. I help them predict that 
And then you base it on the concept of exposure, right? That that love and, and intimacy, especially close, when you combine verbalizations of love and affection and sex, oh my God, that's a recipe for making the avoidant person want to shut themselves in a steel-lined uh, uh, time capsule. Sure, and run away, right? That's right. And so you do exposure. You help prepare them and help them realize that when that happens, it's actually a sign that they are getting close and bonding to the person, not that they are pulling away. If they don't care about the person, they'd be perfectly okay having wild, uh, continual sex. They have no problem having um, ongoing great sex with people they're not emotionally in love with. Got it. So I think that what you're saying is there's really no one size fits all about advice and recommendations about sex, but that a person needs to be as aware as they can of their own attachment styles to figure out what's really going to work best for them around the decisions that they make and which partners that they're choosing to have sex with. Yes. And to understand the other person's attachment style yeah, so that they don't take it personally. If you're in a relationship with an avoidant person and they start to back off a little sexually, it doesn't necessarily mean that they're not interested. I might actually mean that they're connecting to you at such a deep level that it's starting to shut down their emotions. Right. Well, and certainly you're not going to know the ins and outs of a person's attachment style after knowing them one or two times. Right. So you can have clues, but yes, you can get some clues, but um, if they're, if the clues are masked by alcohol use and loud music and whatnot, it may be a little harder to get at. That's a fantastic point. Yeah. Yeah. That's right. So Hal, this has been a really, really interesting conversation about attachment and personality. We talked a little bit about how attachment styles develop in childhood and how they play out in terms of adult personality and relationship patterns. So it's been super, super interesting. I know that you're also an expert on this inner child concept and the inner child work. I don't think we'll have time today to go there. I'd like to invite you back at some point and talk more about that. But can you just say in a few sentences, what is this concept of inner child and why is it important? Absolutely. So that would definitely be a you know, whole topic. For sure. You know, those, those roadmaps, those schemas we have of the world, we learn them in interactions with our parents. But that time is long ago, right? The parents we have today, maybe they're healed. Maybe they're better. Maybe they're different. That actually happens. But our emotional system developed you know, 20, 30 years ago in the context of those parents. And so did those roadmaps and core beliefs. If we're going to alter our attachment style, which can be done, it's a matter of changing the core beliefs, right? You can change the core beliefs by interacting with different parts of yourself and creating a new story of feeling more secure and stable and really using a secure attachment script. Just like if you did have that secure parent, you can give that to yourself because in truth, there is, most modern scholars agree, there's no one core self in any person. There are multiple aspects of self. You can use your adult rational aspect of self to reparent and give a new core message to the emotional or immature aspect of yourself that we're going to call the child. And in doing that, you can teach that emotional part to be calibrated, to have better emotional responses, to have better roadmaps of the world and to do 
behaviors in a way that make relationships. Yeah, that's a super important way of thinking about it. And again, I'd love to invite you to come back and talk for another hour about that topic, because I think it's so important. That's great. I'd like nothing better. Yeah, thanks so much. Um, Hal, any final thoughts you have on this on these topics we've been talking about before we wrap up? Yeah, it's not a matter of if you attach to other people, it's a matter of how. Got it. Right? So, so we all attach, we all have attachment styles. And it's not a matter of whether one's maladaptive or not. It's just a matter of how you use it and how it manifests in your adult relationship. Hal, thank you so much for coming on the show. Really appreciate you being here. And the topic was just really fascinating and wonderful to hear your thoughts on it. Great. Thanks, Alan. Thank you for listening to Mind Tricks Radio. I hope you have enjoyed the program. For more information about Mind Tricks, you can go to my website, www.waikikihealth.com. Be sure to subscribe to Mind Tricks on your preferred podcasting host to be notified of new episodes of Mind Tricks. Please take some time to give Mind Tricks a good rating and review wherever you are listening. It really helps get the word out to new listeners. And please like and share Mind Tricks posts on Twitter and Facebook by following your host, Dr. Aaron Kaplan.